Well, it's always good to be here with you all. I must confess that sometimes I get a bit nervous when I, I look around and see everybody and I think, oh, who am I to get up and speak to these people? But the thing that comforts me is that I, I see in so many of you and in all of you, really, when we like opened worship last week, what a beautiful time that was. Just seeing that in this church, we, we love God and we want to serve him. And that, that helps me when I come up here because I know that I'm speaking to people who love God and want to serve him. And so I come to you as a very, very weak person but who loves God also and I love his word and I pray that his word will speak to us today. So I, I, I've really enjoyed the songs that we were singing, Come and Behold Him. And that's kind of where I want to start. I want to think about, earlier in the week, um, the girls and I watched The Prince of Egypt. It's a, you probably know that film. A lot of you, you're growing up in Christian circles. It's about, about Moses and it was, a, it was a lot of fun. And I, I got to thinking about when Moses was up the mountain and he was talking to God. He was getting th- this vision from God for his people and he was getting this law and he was having all this time communion with God and thinking about how wonderful that would have been, how incredible. And then he comes down the mountain and he finds all these people who have seen all these wonderful acts of God, all these mighty works where God has brought them out of Egypt with these miraculous signs. And he sees them dancing and carousing, drunk, singing praises to a golden calf. It's a shocking juxtaposition, a shocking contrast. And I think the more that we behold God, when we come to the things of this earth, we see that contrast where things just go, oh, that's not right, and it jars us. And when I started reading through this passage, and it's a long passage, I won't be able to go through it all, (laughs) but when I started reading about it, I noticed that it starts, in, in the chapter actually starts with the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus is up on the mountaintop, and he's transformed before the disciples, and they see him in his glory. And it's this incredible time where, where God is present. And he says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it's this incredible experience. But they come down the mountain. And what do they see? They see this scene. They see the disciples, weak, frail, unable to deal with this demonic uh, spirit that's attacking this boy. We see the pain, the pain that's so present in our world. And we see the, the scribes are there, the Pharisees are there. They're, they're, you know, they're making fun of the disciples. They're the ones who are accusing Jesus that he's got the spirit of a demon. They're saying, look, you can't, you know, your disciples, your followers can't get rid of this, this demon. So we come from this mountain experience where God is so real, so present, so holy, so beautiful. And then all of a sudden we come down, crash, bang, in, into this experience of pain and suffering and brokenness. And I thought that's an interesting contrast because it, it, it makes me think of several things. The first is think of, the, think of what Jesus did. Think of what Jesus did when he came to earth as a babe. In Philippians it says that though he was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And he humbled himself, was obedient even unto death, even death on the cross. So you think of that contrast there, that Jesus, who was 
in heaven, adored by the angels, worshipped, he came down to earth. And that's, that's an amazing thing. But we also can see in our own lives how this, this contrast happens, where we have, sometimes we have these experiences, these mountaintop experiences, where God is so real to us. And we're, it's, it's, it's euphoric. You know, I've had these times where you just like, it, 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 it's hard to put it into words. But even for our Lord and Saviour Jesus, life wasn't all about the mountaintops. He didn't stay up there. He came down to earth. He came down into the valley. And that's what we're called to do too in our Christian walk. We have to walk through pain, walk through suffering, walk through trials. And in doing so, we're imitating our Lord. I love that our Lord gave us so many concrete examples of how to follow him. It's not, it's not all abstract, you know. Later on in the passage where the disciples are arguing among themselves about who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Jesus sits them all down. You know, this, this is a teaching moment. He sits them down. And what's he say? Let's, let, let's open it up. I've got the wrong Bible. In uh, verse 33, um, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Or chapter 9. And they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And that is what our Lord did. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And that's, that's the example that Christ gives us, not these abstract sort of things that we struggle our head around, but just practical. He, he got down, he, he served, he humbled himself, and that's what we are called to do too. But we come to this scene. We come to this scene of, of a desperate father with a, with a tortured child. And it's a... It's, it's a confronting scene you know satan gets his work early you know it's this boy this this son has been afflicted from childhood and this father is desperate for healing for his son but the disciples haven't been able to help him so when jesus comes on the scene i think he's pretty grateful to see him there and he comes running up to to jesus and and the in one of the other accounts, it says that he fell on his knees and that he yelled out to Jesus. It was a noisy crowd. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of chaos here. And he cries out to Jesus. But it's, it's such a, a weak declaration of faith. It's, uh, it's what, what's, he, what's he say? Let's see. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He's been trying to protect his child for all his life. This demonic spirit has been attacking this child, throwing it to the ground, throwing it into the fire, throwing it into the water, trying to take its life, trying to destroy. And this father is desperate. And he comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds. He's, Jesus is never a fan of doubt. Never. He always very strong against it. He's, he straight away is like, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. 
And it says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, I do, I do, but help my unbelief. And if ever there's a, a cry in the Bible that I think we identify with, I think it's that prayer right there. I do believe, but help my unbelief. I see that in my own life. I do believe, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I do believe, but, but why don't I always live it out? I do believe, but why do I let other things distract me? Why, why, do, I, why do I hesitate to be fully committed to God, to be full-hearted? I do believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. That's a, a cry that I think we can all identify with. But Jesus takes that little cry of faith and he responds to it. Elsewhere in the Bible, it talks about faith the size of a mustard seed, which is the, the tiniest of seeds that they used in their farming. God sees that little bit of faith and he responds to it. In verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. Even to the very end, it was trying to do its worst. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. And he stood up. The Bible says, Great is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And here we have an example of that. Jesus is life, life abundant. And here he delivers this boy. But of course, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples, they come to him, their tail between their legs, metaphorically. And they say, they ask him privately. Why couldn't we drive it out? I mean, a couple of chapters earlier, you'll read that Jesus had given them, um, he, he, he sent them out and they'd been doing miracles and they'd been casting out demons. They'd sort of been seeing God's hand at work and then here they're like, why, why didn't it work? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. And as Paul alluded to, that's a very hard verse to understand. I don't confess to have understanding of it. <laughs> but when I was reflecting on that, I was thinking, I was thinking about John 15 verse 5. Let's, let's turn there. John 15, chapter 15 verse 5. It's a very famous set of verses. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so when I look on that, this kind can come out only by prayer. That's the first thing that comes to my mind is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And prayer is all about turning our focus to God. 
because it's not about our faith. I mean, in the ex um, extended answer in one of the other Gospels is where Jesus talks about faith the size of a mustard seed. And I think that's, that's so small, it's so small, but it's because it's not about our faith and it's not about who we are, I guess, but it's about him. It's about God. And it's about turning turn to him and his strength. And when we think about turning to God, I mean, you can't help but go to those verses in Isaiah, which uh, Paul started the service talking about. And I want to turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. If you haven't read it, now's your chance. Isaiah chapter 6. You get this amazing account of Isaiah's vision. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. He says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's an incredible experience, and it's so true that when you, when you see God, and I can't claim to have seen God like this, but I know that God has worked in me, and I've experience his love in my life and his spirit working in me and it the more you focus on God the more you see him his goodness his perfection his holiness his righteousness the more you gaze at the perfect the imperfect becomes jarring you see it and you realize wow that is so much so much worse than I could have ever imagined and I was thinking about about how how sin can be so um, we can be so comfortable with it sometimes. I was out out in the garden last week. We had a whole string of days of great weather, and I, I was loving it, loving work, working in the garden. And I, I put a new garden bed in, and it was a lot of work. I got blisters on my hands, but it was a lot of fun, very satisfying work. But I was noticing that when I was out in the garden, I was wearing my dirty clothes. And I was in the mud and I had a, I had a moustache because of all the dirt they got on me. <laughs> it was pretty cool, actually. Uh, it's about the only moustache I'll ever have, probably. Uh, so I'm working in the garden and I'm with all this, all this mud and dirt and stuff and it was for a good cause. But I was comfortable with it. I was really, really comfortable with it because it, it just fit in, in my environment. But the moment I went to the house... I mean, I took my boots off outside and then cleaned them off outside. Then when I walked into the house, I'm like walking down the hallway and I'm like gliding so that the dirt doesn't just shake off onto my nice carpet. I'm making sure I don't touch any walls, any doorknobs, nothing at all because I was filthy. 
And that was fine when I was out in the garden. But when I was in my semi-clean house, <laughs> even though it was semi-clean, I still felt like, man, I am, I am out of place. I was uncomfortable. And the point being that when we behold God, all of a sudden our comfort levels with where we are in life and where we are with sin in our lives, it sort of starts to change, becomes a lot more obvious of where we are when we gaze at perfection. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time going to the end of chapter 9 where it talks about the seriousness of sin in quite a confronting sort of way. It's, I think when you're listening to the passage being read out, you probably probably heard that and thought, wow, that's, um, that's extreme. Where Jesus talks about the, the cutting off your hands, the plucking out your eyes. It's extreme language talking about, talking about sin. So let's, uh, let's have a look at that passage together. Because I don't think we can underestimate how vile sin is. I don't think we can underestimate it. It's something that, that offends God greatly. And it's good for us to, to realize that and to, and to look at it, to, to examine ourselves. And we can do this because we know that with God there is grace and that he has made a way for us to overcome this sin. If, if we were helpless in our... If we had no, no cross to cling to, then it would be too scary a subject to even contemplate, let's be honest. But we can contemplate it because God has made a way for us to be saved. But let's have a look at this, uh, starting in verse 42 of chapter 9. Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. All right, that's, uh, that's fine. What's the, what's the first thing you think of when you read that? <laughs> Probably lots of things. I'll tell you what it makes me think of. It actually makes me think of the Good Shepherd makes me think about how God is the good shepherd and that he loves his sheep, and that he cares for his sheep. Because here he's basically warning, he's saying, if you cause one of my little ones, one of my sheep, to stumble, to fall, he's like, I'm coming for you. <laughs> like, th this is serious. God loves his sheep. He loves his children. And we also are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a, a positive example of this. If we um, turn over to Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verse 31, we had this great scene of um, the, the judgment at the end of time where God separates the sheep from the goats. And we had this positive example of, of treating our brothers and sisters, right. He says, 
In, uh, so this is Matthew chapter 25, uh, verse 34. Says, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you some, some lovely lemonade? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You did it for me. So that's, that's the positive way of looking at this, that when we, when we are serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's like we're serving Christ. But of course, in here, we're looking at the negative side. That also means that, when we are doing the wrong thing by our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're doing the wrong things to, to our Lord. And that is incredibly serious. And so it follows from there that what causes us to, to make others stumble is when we stumble ourselves. And so Jesus goes on to say, deal with that. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Incredibly, incredibly serious. Now, there's so many ways you can take that and, and, and think about that. And, and it bears, bears reflecting on the severity that Christ calls us to, to deal with the sin in our lives. What your hands, what your feet do, what your eyes do, whatever you see, whatever you do, wherever you go. Jesus is saying, whatever it takes, deal with this sin. Whatever it takes, cut it out. Now, it's probably worth noting that when Jesus is saying this, I don't think he's literally saying cut your, your hand off. It's a, it is a metaphor. It's not hyperbole in the sense that it is true. It is true that it is better to go to heaven without a hand. It's completely true. But it is metaphor in the sense that 
it's not actually even that easy. As hard as it is to cut off a hand, it's not, that's not even enough. And Jesus is immensely clear on this, that it's from within that we are defiled. It's from our heart that sin comes from. In Mark chapter 7, verse 14, we read about that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered, his house, uh, entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Jesus answered. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So we know that it's from within. But the point of this section stands clear in that Jesus says, do whatever it takes, no matter how much it hurts, no matter the cost, to deal with the sin in your life. And Jesus spoke a lot about that, about counting the cost, counting the cost of following him, because it isn't easy. Paul talks a lot about crucifying the flesh. That's not easy. It's not easy. We have sins that, I mean, J.C. Ryle is one of the guys I love reading, and he talks about how sometimes our sins are like dear children to us, and to get rid of them is kind of as, as hard as cutting off our own hand. It's not easy. But the consequences are life and death. In Luke chapter 14, we read about Jesus talking about this counting the cost. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, verse 20. 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For you laid a foundation and are not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. In verse 27 he says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It's, 
it's, it's a hard thing. And we have to count the cost because there is a cost dealing with all this. But there's one beautiful thing that I wanted to highlight in all this and that's that we don't do this on our own. If you ask me to cut my hand off, metaphorically or literally, I don't have the strength to do it. If there's things that God says are in my life that I need to get rid of because they're poisoning me, they're destroying me, I don't have the strength to do it. Where does that strength come from? It comes from our Lord, from Christ. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from today, is to behold our Lord, to behold our God, because He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is our safe place, our place of refuge. He is our safety, our shelter. He is our merciful Father. And when we come to him as his sheep, poor and weak and needy, and we cry out, I believe, but help my unbelief. He has compassion, and he helps us in our time of need. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. I can never find the book of Hebrews. It's... I'm probably going the wrong way. Ah, found it. Hebrews 12, 1-2. to two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, whatever it takes, get rid of it. Let us throw it off. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, on our Lord because that is the only place where you will find victory in anything in your life. The only place where you will find the strength to count the cost and to follow him is by leaning into his everlasting arms. In Jude, there's this beautiful doxology where he writes, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling... To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.